So today we're going to talk about alterations related to oxygenation in um, children. So with slide one, it talks about the anatomy and physiology of a child. And so we notice that the in the upper airway, they have a smaller oral cavity and a larger tongue. And this also will be found in children with Down syndrome. And even as they get older, we, they still have the enlarged tongue and the floppy airway. So we worry about cases where we have to intubate them or cases where they're in respiratory distress or something like that. So um, that is something when we're following children with Down syndrome, choking hazards, things like that, that we worry about with them. If they're eating too fast, we try to have them slow down. Um, and as I said, the large floppy epiglottis. So things that they could possibly aspirate on, toys, candy, um, food such as hot dogs, marshmallows, various things like that. We always are very careful, you know, instructing parents to cut the foods into small bites and things like that. Um, also, gas exchange is very important with children. Um, we try to um, pay attention to how they're breathing, what their breathing pattern is. And I think I discussed before in class that under two years old, we're going to look at respirations from the abdomen because that's where they're breathing from. So we're counting respirations um, from the abdomen. And as they get older, we look at their chest for um, chest rise and fall. The lower airway, um, we look at the trachea, bronchi bronchi and bronchioles, especially when a child is diagnosed with asthma and we're working with them to try to get their bronchi open and their bronchioles and everything open, doing special airway exercises with them blowing bubbles, doing incentive spirometry, talking with them about special exercises to help with their asthma. A lot of pediatricians might recommend swimming as a certain exercise for them. The differences with the pediatric respiratory system, lack of, or a insufficient surfactant, especially when a baby is born premature, they may not have enough surfactant for their lungs. So we will give them the medication surfactant and that is a very interesting thing to watch because that's when the baby is intubated and then they instill the uh, medication surfactant through the tube. And then it's almost like they're drowning the lungs because they put the baby on a table and they do different maneuvers to coat the lungs with the surfactant. And then um, noting that babies are oblig obligatory nose breathers and they will have brief periods of apnea. But when a baby is premature, they may have apnea also with bradycardia. So we are constantly monitoring them for periods of apnea and bradycardia. And that's unusual. So it's abnormal if they are having periods of apnea and bradycardia. We may have to what we call bag them up. So we would put the AMBU bag on them and bag them until their heart rate and their um, oxygen saturation comes back up to normal. Also, with kids, they will have a faster respiratory rate and increased metabolic needs because they're children and they do have other needs rather than adults. And their eustachian tubes are horizontal. So we may notice ear infections coming up, especially when kids are teething. And then they have enlarged tonsils and they have a more flexible larynx. So they are susceptible to having laryngospasms. So um, that's something we watch out for with them. And the next picture is just the anatomy of the child. And then 
terms to pay attention to, like if you're reading a report or you're in the room with the child who's brought in with respiratory distress, work of breathing is the muscular effort required for ventilation. So you may be reading a report and it says increased work of breathing. And that's when the respirations are very, very fast and they're really huffing and puffing to get air in and out. And ventilation is the movement of oxygen into the lungs and carbon monoxide out. So that's the exchange of air. And then perfusion would be oxygenated blood flow to all portions of the lung and also out to the extremities. So you may be reading a report of a kid that was brought in for some type of emergency. Maybe it was a respiratory or a cardiac emergency. And it might say poorly perfused. And this is when we're looking at the extremities or are we looking at the O2 sat? The O2 saturation might be extremely low or the extremities are blue or maybe some type of mottled look. And so, um, you know, the skin color is not pink as it should be. So they may call this poor perfusion. When we're doing the respiratory assessment, we always allow the patient, and this is in also adults, we always allow the patient to assume their position of comfort. They may not be comfortable laying flat on a bed. They may need to sit up and they may need to tripod or they may be comfortable laying from one side to the next. Let them sit the way they or position themselves the way they feel comfortable. And also the least invasive thing for you to do when a patient is having some type of respiratory issue is to sit them up. That's the first thing you should do. And it's the least invasive and most simple nursing intervention that you can do for someone who's having some type of respiratory issue. So we look at their vital signs just before you even put on a blood pressure cuff or monitor or anything. You're looking at their respirations, the rate and the depth. Are they having trouble? Is it labored breathing or are they having ease of breathing? What does the heart rate monitor? If you have them on the monitor, what does the heart rate read as? Or if you can go ahead and take a pulse with the respirations, what is that looking like? Is it weak, strong, very fast? Are they tachypnic? Are they tachycardic? Tachypnic would be the respirations and tachycardic would be the heart rate. Lung sounds. Sometimes you can walk into the room and you automatically hear before you even put a stethoscope or auscultate. You can hear what they sound like. And this is audible wheezes is what they would describe that is as. So before you put the stethoscope on, are you hearing them as you walk into the room? So um, then you put your stethoscope on and you're auscultating. You're listening to, do you hear diminished or no lung sounds? Do you hear wheezes, crackles, or ronchi? Um, I have a video later on in this uh, presentation to let you know what that sounds like. And then is there strider? Is the breathing labored? Are you seeing retractions? What does the patient's color look like? Are they pink? Are they pale? Are they blue in certain places? If they're blue around their lips or they're the tip of their nose, we call that oral cyanosis. Or um, with the lips, we call that oral cyanosis. Or if it's the nose and the lips, we call it central cyanosis. You're going to look at their fingertips with the cap refill and see if that's um, brisk or delayed. And then um, if they cry, if the patient cries, does their color get worse? And that's going to also indicate to you that there's something going on. And it could also be a cardiac issue as well. 
when they cough, are they just, is it a dry cough or are they bringing up some phlegm with that? Does it sound weird, musical, that type of stuff? Is there a family history of having any respiratory problems such as asthma or um, maybe cystic fibrosis? And then is there a behavior change? Are they all of a sudden they were calm and then the next thing you know, they're very worried, you know, gasping, saying, please don't let me die or they just can't get comfortable. You need to pay attention to that. And maybe the parent or caregiver will say to you, something's wrong. They're not acting right. And you also need to pay attention to what the patient, the parent or the caregiver is saying to you. The next slide is your respiratory rate parameters. And this is what um, all over the United States, this is what we're using for the regular respiratory rate with that. The next slide shows you where you would be hearing certain lung sounds, your crackles, your ronchi, and your wheezes. And then the, this is the video for lung sounds on the next slide. And then the next slide talks about your attractions and what croup looks like. And then when you're observing retractions on the infant, it shows you where you'll see your substernal, suprasternal, intercostal, those retractions where you observe that. And then um, for the next slide would be um, also showing you where you might see substernal retractions. And also this is with the infant intercostal retractions. But um, with this slide, you can see where you can see the ribs. And this is also on all patients. You're seeing the ribs with intercostal retractions. And this is kind of, you may hear a physician or someone else say they're retracting to the backbone because they're pulling, they're tugging all the way in to get that breath in. So that's um, very important to watch if they're tugging all the way in, that's not a good thing. And then also the next slide shows you your symptoms of hypoxia. When the patient is lacking oxygen early on, they're gonna be very restless. They can't get comfortable in bed. They can't find a position of comfort. And they may have super anxiety, like don't leave me, don't let me die, things like that. And on the monitor, or even if you don't have a monitor, you will notice tachycardia and, and tachypnea. Late signs would be they're bradycardic, that their heartbeat is very, very slow. They're extremely restless. Now they're really like, I'm dying, I'm dying, somebody help me. And then they have severe dyspnea. This is when the body is really giving out. Early signs, they have, they've, they're compensating and you need to do some type of interventions to help them. The late sign, the bed is when you are losing them and now you should be coding them. If anything, you should be really coding them, getting them some help. If you're not in a hospital setting, you should have called 911 a long time ago. And then in the pediatric patient, you will notice when they're having trouble with their respiratory system and they're going into a little bit of respiratory distress, you'll have a feeding difficulty with the baby. The baby might latch on and then decide, no, I don't want this because it's too hard for me to work with all of this, trying to suck, breathe, swallow, all of that is too much. You'll notice some inspiratory strider. The nasal flaring is kind of like if you have a horse who's racing and their nares are flaring out. And then expiratory grunting is because they're bearing down to push out to pop open their lungs. And then you, you notice external retractions. And then your next slide would be your respiratory severity score. This is often done on infants who are born premature 
or infants who come in with respiratory distress and they give them a scoring. And based on that score is what type of interventions are they gonna do? If it's super, super severe, they may go ahead and intubate and sedate them just to give their body some rest. Head bobbing is not just you bobbing your head to the beat of the music. It's really where they're using an extra accessory muscle to help them get their breath in and out. And so um, it follows along with their respirations. When you see an infant head bobbing, there is something wrong. And you can also have a look at this video and see what I'm talking about. So as I talked about before, the grunting. So they're putting, um, they're bearing down to open up their glottis. So um, the grunting, flaring, and retractions is very important. When they start doing that, you really need to pay attention and do an intervention. Behaviors that we'll notice in kids who are having issues with their respiratory system. As I said, they're super restless. They're very irritable. The parent or the caregiver might tell you they're acting funny. I don't know what's wrong with them. And then they could be super anxious, like you would see the anxiety in their eyes. You go to try to put an O2 mask on them or a respiratory treatment on them, and they can't take it. They don't want anything on their face. And you have to try to do your best to keep them calm because the more you agitate them, the worse the exacerbation is going to be. So cluster your nursing care. And then um, all of a sudden they get very, very tired. And then they just seem like they rally back and they have all this energy. So watching that back and forth is uh, giving you a definite clue that you need to have interventions on board. And you can call, you have friends in the clinics and in the hospital. Those are your respiratory therapist friends. And you can call them to help assess and give opinions and treatments and things that you need. You're not in this alone. And so the next slide I'm giving you is your respiratory patterns. And it just gives you all the patterns. But when you get down to Shane Stokes, this is the pattern of when the person is about to meet their um, demise. They're about to pass away. So unless they're a do not resuscitate, you really don't want your patient to be in that status. Urgent respiratory threats would be um, you have your signs and symptoms. As I talked about, the increased restlessness, irritability. They're very lethargic or tired, like you're trying to start an IV on them or trying to put oxygen on them, different things like that, and they have no fight in them, that's not a good sign because children are going to fight when you go to do a procedure, and that's just their natural way of reacting. So if they're not reacting that way, unless there's some other type of developmental delay, you need to be very worried and concerned. And then if they're un all of a sudden having this unexplained confusion, like they came in with their mom and dad and then they're not recognizing their mom and dad, then that's worrisome. They have, they're extremely hypoxic at that point. And then you have your rapid heartbeat with the rapid um, respiratory rate. This is when you probably need to be getting your code cart ready or calling a rapid response. And then apnea of prematurity would be structural or functional problems. Um, and this is when the baby is in the NICU and they're being closely watched and we may have some type of interventions going for them. They could be ventilated and sedated or maybe they're just being closely monitored before we do a procedure on them to fix the reason why they're having apnea of prematurity. And ALTI, the, an apparent life-threatening event. I still have this like um, as, as described as ALTI because you may still see it on certain paperwork. 
but they are now, to make it a little more politically correct, calling it BRUE. It's B-R-U-E. It's a brief, unexplained event because parents were seeing the apparent life-threatening event and getting very nervous and afraid that their baby was going to die. So possible causes of this would be the baby's extremely premature or they have gastroesophageal reflux. They could be septic. There could be some other type of infection going on. There could be a seizure happening. There could be a cardiac issue happening, or there could be some type of other neuro or genetic issue happening with this baby. So when the baby has this event, they may have a color change. They may get cyanotic, become very limp and pale, and maybe they're extremely red in the face. And at first, the parent thought they were bearing down, trying to have a bowel movement, but then it happens again and they get very concerned and they either rush to the emergency room or they bring the child into the pediatrician's office. At this point, this calls for an immediate um, admission for 24 hours. They will do a septic workup and that in requires drawing um, blood cultures. They will also do um, a urinalysis and a urine culture. And then the baby is admitted um, for 24 hour observation to see if we can uh, witness the event that the parents saw. So um, they're on the complete monitors. We might see a decrease in their oxygen saturation or their heart rate might go down or we might actually see the seizure activity. So if that's witnessed, then they'll order more tests. It could be that they put them on a 24 hour EEG to monitor their brain, or they may send them for an echocardiogram or something like that to further do studies to see if something actually is wrong from birth, a congenital malformation or something like that that wasn't picked up before. And we have our upper airway disorders that I'm going to go into next. Otitis media would be one of them. And that's um, usually happens around six to 12 months of age. And this is usually because this is when the baby is cutting teeth. Sometimes they cut a couple of teeth and sometimes they may bring in five or six teeth at a time. And this is pushing on the eustachian tube. So it starts to cause um, inflammation, irritation, all these types of things. And so um, acute otitis media, or as we also call it, an ear infection, would be an inflammation of the middle ear. And then otitis media with effusions would be a subacute problem where fluid is trapped behind the eardrum. And to look at the etiology of this, it often follows an upper respiratory infection. It could be caused by bacteria or it also could be a viral situation. A lot of times this happens because the baby was feeding supine. That's why we try to say, don't put your baby to bed with a bottle. It could be overuse of pacifiers. There are some babies who have like a pacifier in their mouth and then one pacifier in each hand. And that's just their comfort thing. And they just suck on it all the time. And this is putting too much pressure on their ears. Um, and it also could be because of enlarged adenoids. And so um, the anatomical structure of the eustachian tube, which is connected to the nasopharynx, all of these issues come into play. And this is why we see these problems happening. So here's your infant eustachian tube and the adult eustachian tube, and you can see the little difference there. 
And so this is the slide that shows you otitis media. So usually it'll happen with the baby starting to pull at their ear and being very irritable. They may have a decreased appetite. They may have a runny nose looking like they have a cold. Um, they may have a, a fever. And so also um, they could have some lymph node enlargement there. They may also experience vertigo. So if this is a baby or a child that's been walking, they may suddenly get up to go walk and toddle around. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're falling into the wall or they fall down. Um, so we start to you know, worry about that. We take them into the pediatrician's office to be examined and they notice, hey, they have a little bit of inflammation here. Let's treat this. A lot of pediatricians now are not treating with antibiotics unless it's really, really bad. They just may give um, some type of eardrops with pain medication in them to help soothe. And then they'll tell the parents to give Tylenol, especially if they are um, have teething at that time. And so then um, we try to do our best to keep them comfortable. But these, if these ear infections continue to recur, we will go ahead and set them up for surgery. And that's um, bilateral myringotomy with ear tubes. So here are your clinical manifestations. If this is not, if the ear infections are not taken care of in a prompt manner, I will say that it could lead to hearing loss. You may notice a child who has um, a speech delay or some type of problem with their language because they weren't hearing correctly. Um, and then they could also have ringing in their ears or some type of a disturbance with their balance. And so that's why it's very, very important to get this treated as soon as possible. And then we're going to go past the ear assessment. And we talked about um, recurrent ear problems, otitis media. So if they have three bouts in six months or four bouts in 12 months, we look at possibly working them up for surgery. So the first line of treatment would be the antibiotics. And this is also kind of ju judging by what the insurance will pay for. So at first, the insurance is going to want you to treat it medically. And then if that doesn't work, we go with the myringotomy, which is a surgical incision into the um, tympanic membrane, and then the tympanoplasty, which is putting the ear tubes in to equalize the pressure. And so your nursing priorities and interventions after that is, this is usually an outpatient procedure, but we do teach the parents to um, administer the analgesic as needed. So it could be administering Tylenol and also eardrops to keep um, the patient comfortable. And then having them sit up or raise their head of the bed when they're sleeping. So if they say to put them on two pillows, what I usually do is say put the pillows under the mattress or under the sheet so that the child isn't falling off of the pillows. Um, if they are old enough to chew gum, they can chew gum, but just making sure they don't fall asleep with it and get it all in their hair. And then um, if it's a baby, we would encourage the breastfeeding to continue and then administer antibiotics if they are prescribed. Um, they will go for a hearing assessment later on after they're all healed up and also for a speech and motor uh, follow up as well after they have had the surgery. For parents, we teach them to not smoke around the child because secondhand smoke has been determined to cause more ear infections and avoiding the wood burning stoves. And this is just because um, some kids could be allergic to that smoke. And so um, we asked them to smoke outside and then come in and take off their clothes or the jacket they were wearing. Encouraging breastfeeding because studies have shown that that is helpful. 
and then um, avoiding the pacifier use, trying to wean them off of the pacifier. No bottle propping, so dangerous with the bottle propping. And then um, any medications that are prescribed, administering it on time, what the side effects could possibly be, um, helping the parent or the caregiver to realize when the patient is in pain to give the medication if needed. And then hopefully the child will outgrow ear infections um, as they get older. So we're gonna start this recording talking about tonsillitis and adenoiditis. And this is would be slide 34. Tonsillitis is an inflammation of the palatine tonsils and adenoiditis would be inflammation of the pharyngeal tonsils on the posterior wall of the nasal pharynx. Slide 35 shows you the different phases of inflammation with zero being the surgically removed tonsils and number four being an extreme inflammation where the tonsils extend to the midline. At this point, the tonsils are touching and they're probably causing a sleep apnea and extreme snoring. And also the patient's speech would be affected. The patient would be sounding as if they're muffled in speech or talking underwater, water, or maybe sounding as if they are a cartoon character. With tonsillitis and adenoiditis, the signs and symptoms would be sore throat, very bad breath in the morning, difficulty swallowing, and upon examination, you may notice some exudate on the tonsils. Um, with the enlarged, enlarged adenoids, as I said before, the speech could be affected. They may mouth breathe or have snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. Diagnosis, how do we diagnose that they're having these issues? Most often, a throat culture would reveal that there is some type of bacteria growing on the tonsils. With a visual inspection, you would notice whether the tonsils are enlarged and or touching. And then adenoiditis would be seen on an x-ray. The next slide, number 37, just gives you an overview of what the tonsils are looking like, um, kind of the side view. And then the next slide also gives you the side view of what the tonsils look like, what a normal anatomy would look like versus an anatomy that um, has some enlarged issues causing sleep apnea. And then on the next slide over, you see tonsillitis and pharyngitis. You'll note the exudate on the tonsils all the way in the back past the teeth. You notice some exudate also on the tongue and you see the tonsils are so enlarged that they're about to touch. Enlarged tonsils, also with the next slide, you see the tonsils that are so enlarged they're probably touching when the patient breathes in and out during sleep. So this would cause snoring and OSA would be obstructive sleep apnea. And then the slide on the right would be where the tonsils are enlarged, but they're not quite touching. So they're just mildly enlarged and we will be watching this patient. They may constantly have tonsillitis um, where they're being treated for a strep infection or something of that sort. And as I said, being treated with treatment would require antibiotics. And then if they continue to have these infections, there would be a surgical removal of the tonsils. So there also is certain requirements to for the treatment, and this is sometimes driven by insurance. So we look at the medical record and see have they had recurrent throat infections, probably three to four within one year. 
they will get tested to see if there is, in fact, sleep apnea. And they also will get tested to see if there are any problems with their speech and do they have any or abnormalities with their face, any um, facial deformities or problems with facial growth. So they'll be measured and things like that via the speech therapist. So when the uh, tonsils and adenoids are surgically removed, this is what they could possibly look like. The bottom two are tonsils and the top one is adenoids. So po post-operative care of a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, we allow the patient to either sleep on their ad abdomen or to sleep on their side until they are fully awake. And this is to prevent any aspiration because they've come out of surgery and they are very, very sleepy and they're not swallowing their saliva or any other um, things that it could be blood or something like that. So we keep them on their side or their abdomen. Um, we don't do anything that would aggravate the operative site. So we're not sticking anything deep in there to suction in their oral cavity. Um, we try not to do anything that would elicit a cough or them sneezing or clearing their throat. We don't ask them to do anything as far as gargling. And we make sure that they don't have to blow their nose. We will suction but it's just kind of like the suction we use in the dentist's office is soft tip and we just go a little bit past the lip to suction out any secretions. We look at the secretions to see if they are bloody. They may be a little bit blood tinged, but they should be clear. We provide the patient with an ice collar and this promotes vasoconstriction and helps also with pain relief and inflammation, decreasing the inflammation. And we will administer analgesics, but we don't normally use NSAIDs. We just give something like Tylenol, and we usually give it around the clock. This is an outpatient surgery, unless there are some other indicators that mean the patient needs to stay overnight for observation. So once we are sending this patient home, we will instruct the parent or the caregiver to even wake the patient up throughout the night to administer the Tylenol and keep them comfortable. The post-operative surgical diet would be cool fluids. It could be ice. It could be popsicles, but nothing dairy because dairy produces more mucus. And this is for also any respiratory patient. Dairy produces more mucus, so we don't want that to happen. We'll just give them kind of clear fluids. We don't. We ask that the parents not give them anything red because we don't want to mistake that for blood. Then once they're a little bit better and more comfortable, we would advance them to a soft diet, but not hot foods, just kind of room temperature or warm foods, because we're still very worried about the surgical site. With the um, operative site, it is just, um, they cauterize the area. So it's basically like they have scabs in the back of their throat. So we do everything we can to let those scabs continue to heal. And then, um, we don't want to disturb that in any way. So we ask the parents to avoid red or brown colored foods. No acidic juice or foods. So a lot of kids want, they want the flaming hot Cheetos and all that stuff. That's definitely a no. No Doritos, no chips of any kind with sharp edges. We ask that they don't drink from a straw. Um, nothing with spicy stuff. And as I said, no dairy for the first two to three days. And it's very important that we tell them to make sure they manage pain because some 
uh, toddlers as young as three years old have had to have their tonsils out and then they refuse to drink and they won't swallow their saliva and they get severely dehydrated and then they have to come back to the hospital for IV hydration. So if you would give these instructions and make sure that the parent understands in the beginning, the parent or caretaker, it would kind of um, avoid a lot of extra readmission things that happen. To look for a hemorrhage, the signs and symptoms would be, of course, frank bleeding and the excretion. So it just, it smells like blood. It looks like blood. It's not mixed with saliva. The patient suddenly becomes tachycardic. They, their skin color changes. They start to look really pale. They're frequently swallowing. They may be spitting out big clots. They might have some throat clearing that they're not supposed to be having. They're very restless. They can't get comfortable. They're nervous. They're anxious. They're worried about dying. And then that their blood pressure is decreasing. When their blood pressure is decreasing and they're restless, this is a late sign. Like they're already have bled out a lot and you should have done an intervention before that happened. And the hemorrhage is most likely to happen within the first 24 hours. That's why it's super important that you monitor your patient very carefully before you send them home. The worst case of this happening is a patient, Jahi McNath, if you'll look up that information, she was in Oakland Children's Hospital several years ago, and she had her tonsils taken out. And unfortunately, they did not do any pre-op blood work, which routinely they don't do pre-op blood work on children. If they had, they would have known that she had a bleeding disorder. But instead, they went ahead and did the surgery on her. And then she was bleeding out in the post-operative care unit. And um, she was spitting out big clots, throwing up blood, doing all this stuff. And they had called the surgeon several times and he was busy and never came to the bedside. Her family was acting out and the nursing staff was just kind of discounting what was going on with her. And then she coded. She went into hypovolemic shock and coded and was pronounced brain dead at the hospital. Her family refused to accept that and they would not have anything to do with the death certificate. So they had her transferred from California to a skilled nursing facility. I believe it was in New Jersey. And she just recently passed away. She was still on full ventilator. She was ventilator dependent. And her mom quit her job and moved there to stay with her in the skilled nursing facility and check on her and do most of her care. And the reason why she died is because she went to have a G2 placed and she bled out on the table. So this is a very unfortunate, unfortunate event that happened. And we just need to really make sure that we listen to the family, the, the patient, the caregiver, everyone, and pay attention and do interventions before things get that bad. As I said, patient education. So let the patient, the parent, the caregiver know that their throat will be sore for at least seven to 10 days. They could have some ear pain postoperatively, and this might last four, eight, or 10 days as well. Um, and then the diet, as I said before, soft foods, jello, frozen pops, mashed potatoes are always a favorite of the children, but just avoiding spicy things, um, hot stuff, things that are red or brown, pain management, Tylenol, pretty much around the clock, even waking them up in the middle of the night. For the first two to three days, I would say do this. 
um, noticing signs and symptoms of a potential infection, fever that's not relieved by Tylenol, um, any swelling of the area, pain that's not controlled by the Tylenol. Um, if you notice any discharge from the back of the throat or it doesn't smell right, then that's um, time to seek medical help. And then also any bleeding or spitting out clots would be time to get medical intervention as well. I gave you the answers to these questions, so we're going to um, pass over that. And then my next um, topic would be croup. So croup would be a broad classification of upper airway illnesses that's caused by inflammation and swelling of the epiglottis and larynx. So this um, could be spasmodic laryngitis where they lose their voice or become hoarse. If they rest for 24 hours and encourage fluids, sometimes this gets better. Laryngeal trachobronchitis is most commonly referred to as croup. And then you have epiglottitis, which is very, very serious. It's rare, but it's super serious. So you have to intervene very quickly or this could lead to death. So laryngeal, laryngotracheal bronchitis, um, also known as croup, would be inflammation of the mucosal lining, the larynx and trachea and the bronchi, which results in the airway narrow, narrowing. And this is usually caused by a virus. It usually happens during the winter time, especially on the East Coast. You commonly see this in children aged three months to three years, and it could last from three to seven days, we have seen it last as long as 14 days. And we just kind of manage the symptoms with this. If you look at the next slide, it shows what normal vocal cords look like. And then we see the inflammation with croup for the um, vocal cords with laryngotracheobronchitis. Um, as I said, mostly viral causes, we see parainfluenza, influenza A and B and other situations that cause this. When we, um, have a child who comes in with these symptoms, we do what we call a respiratory panel. And it's where the respiratory therapist or the, someone from the lab might come and they stick either a Q-tip or some type of um, other device up and do basically a scraping all the way up very high. Almost still the same like they're testing for COVID right now. It's very high up into the um, nasal passageways to get enough sample and then test for many, many viruses. And so sometimes they'll come back positive for influenza, parainfluenza, and a couple of others. And this causes them to go into um, isolation in the hospital. Clinical manifestations, most likely the parent or the caregiver will say it started when they had symptoms of upper respiratory infection, or they had a cold last week, and now we have this. Um, they may or may not have a fever. They're often irritable, restless, and very, very afraid because they hear that they're sounding weird and they're scared and they don't understand what that is. And then they also notice that they feel a little funny as well. So they, the hallmark sign of this is the barking cough. They sound like a seal, how the seal barks when it's communicating. This is what they sound like. And they will also have the inspiratory strider. When they have severe airway inflammation, they'll also have expiratory strider. They'll be severely tachypneic. They could have retractions all over. And then when we put them on the machine to look at their pulse ox, it will be decreased. And so how do we treat this? Usually it's an outpatient treatment. They may come into the pediatrician's office or the emergency department and get medication and be sent home. We will tell the parents, if possible, if they have a cool mist humidifier, 
to put that in the room to help with decreasing the air, decreasing the inflammation. Um, sit the child in the bathroom with the hot shower. It just depends on the child. Sometimes they do better with the cool mist. Sometimes they do better with the hot shower, the hot water. So we discourage use of um, warm mist humidifiers because of the potential of bacterial growth in the water. So we'll tell them to put them in, um, put them in the room, turn on the shower water really, really hot, and just let them have that steam going and let them breathe in the um, steam for a few minutes and see if that helps during a coughing episode. Um, during the wintertime, if you're in a place where it's very cold, the doctor will tell you to open up the window and let that cool air come in. And that also helps with the child's um, exacerbation of coughing and keeping the child very, very calm and distracted so that they're not up trying to run around their brothers and sisters or their classmates and things like that. Giving them things to do while sitting on the couch or in bed, like watching a movie or, you know, some calming music or stuff like that that's different from their other routine that will keep them calm and warm fluids, but not anything with a dairy base because that makes it worse. And then if the breathing becomes labored or they're in more strider, then this is when we ask to go to the emergency department or maybe you even need to call 911 if it's a long drive to the emergency department. Signs of an impending obstruction, and this means the inflammation is getting so bad that it's about to close the airways off, would be tachycardia. The respiratory rate is getting higher and higher, greater than 60. Um, you have retractions, you have nasal flaring, you have they're more restless and they're more anxious. They're get the color change, you see them getting pale and kind of clammy. They're sweating, diaphoretic. There are signs of anoxia and hy hypercapnia, which is they're just acting weird. Nothing, they don't recognize people, they're not making sense when they're talking, things like that. And how will we know that they're in respiratory acidosis? Well, that would involve um, someone drawing an ABG. So they would have to be in a hospital or clinical setting and running it to notice that they're having that. We also have the croup scoring scale, and this may be done in a physician's office or um, an emergency department. And this is where we score them based on what we're observing. And then if they have a very high score, we will treat accordingly. So this slide with the cartoon on it is um, what croup looks like. So it could be a slow onset or it could be a fast onset. They definitely have the barking cough or the crowing sounds. You have the strider, inspiratory, sometimes expiratory. Most often it happens at night when the child has settled down and then they start with all the coughing and stuff. They could get hypoxic and then they may or may not have a temperature, as I said. Usually happens when kids are less than five years old. Um, restless, supersternal retractions, increased respiratory rate, all of these things fall into that um, signs and symptoms. So you may want to pay attention to this slide. And then for treatment in the hospital, they will be on some type of nebulizer, most likely. It depends on how severe they are. Some physicians still want racemic epi um, in their treatment plan, so they may order racemic epi. They may order um, albuterol or Zopinex. Sometimes it helps the child, sometimes it doesn't. They may order cool mist to be set up in the room. There are definitely corticosteroids that they will order to be on board. It could be via a nebulizer treatment or it could be 
IV. Um, Decadron is a common one that we use. And then also respiratory support. So this was this is when your friend, the respiratory therapist, is coming in, checking frequently, assessing frequently, and possibly giving nebulizers or looking to see if they need oxygen or increasing the oxygenation and things like that. So for nursing, your main priority is to keep this airway open. So position the child so that their in, their work of breathing is not increased. Sit them up high. Um, keep the child comfortable, cluster your nursing care. Don't keep going in there, agitating them, them and getting them upset. Cluster it all in one thing and then leave so and allow them the maximum amount of rest and just stay, make sure they're visible so that you can visualize them through the door and help let the parent help communicate to you if something is going wrong or something changes. Um, also with this, they have, um, they're more likely to dehydrate faster because of the demands on their body. So being alert for signs and symptoms of dehydration, most likely these kids when they are hospitalized will have an IV for backup, backup, backup hydration um, to fight off dehydration. We're monitoring their intake and output very carefully. So if they're not drinking like they used to, we have the fluids where we can... Um, They'll be on the maintenance, but sometimes we may have to adjust them based on their output. Watch for any issues with difficulty swallowing because this could quickly turn into epiglottitis. So it could be an early sign of epiglottitis and we'll need to watch the patient very carefully for that. Discharge after they've had this event. Let the parent or caregiver know that this could possibly come back. It also gets worse at night. If the, the symptoms recur, take them into cold air. Make sure you keep them comfort, comforted. Don't get them all excited about what's going on. Keep them calm. Hopefully this child will outgrow it. And then symptoms to be alert for in case they need to come back to the emergency department again or to call 911. So epiglottitis is a definite life-threatening problem. It's the inflammation of the epiglottis. It comes from an acute infection. It could be bacterial or it could be related to H influenza. Um, this is why we are so, tell parents it's so important to get the Hib vaccine um, because we found that the Hib vaccine has decreased the incidence of epiglottitis in children by 99%. So here's the little um, cartoon of what epiglottitis looks like. And the patient just feels like they're strangling to death. So they're very um, increased pulse, very, very restless. They have this obstruction in their airway and they're just working so hard to breathe. They have all kinds of retractions, high anxiety. They can't swallow anything. So you allow them to assume the position of comfort, which is usually the tripod position. And then they're drooling. So give them something to catch the drool. Nurses never, ever examine the throat. You contact the physician immediately if you feel like this is what's going on and get prepared to intubate the patient. So here's causes of epiglottitis, and this is the picture of what it looks like. And then your clinical manifestations, it could be rapid. Um, you have a sudden high fever. You're unable to cough. So the four Ds to remember are dysphonia, difficulty speaking, drooling because you can't swallow and handle your own saliva, difficulty swallowing, 
dyspnea, you're just in respiratory distress, very distressed, restless, agitation. And if the, if the patient can't figure out how to get in the tripod position, you as the nurse should help them get in the tripod position. And then, um, as I said, the nurse does not inspect the mouth or the throat. If you feel like this is epiglottitis, you will immediately notify a physician and then get ready to um, get everything set up to intubate the patient. And then once the patient is intubated and on the ventilator, this is when you will perform your um, throat culture. And which it, this here talks about the tripod position and why it opens the airway. And so we treat this patient with oxygen. We help to maintain the airway by intubating them. We will give them IV epinephrine, IV antibiotics, and complete body rest. So here's a chart with croup versus epiglottitis. You can read over that. And then this is the side view of croup versus epiglottitis. Nursing interventions, you're going to be constantly monitoring the respiratory system. Your focused um, assessments will be there. Um, as I said, you're going to prepare for intubation, keeping the patient or the child comfort and comforted and calm and trying to not have them cry because that just makes things a little bit worse. Administer medications as prescribed, especially the antibiotics and then the IV epinephrine and keeping them hydrated, which they're going to be on um, IV, IV fluids. So you'll make sure that you're doing strict intake and output and you're looking at that and adjusting as needed. So um, I'm going to end here, and then we'll talk about lower airway disorders in just a moment. So now we're going to talk about lower airway disorders, which is, includes bronchiolitis. Bronchiolitis would be an inflammation of the bronchioles because of mechanical changes. This incorporates thick mucus production, which occludes the bronchial tubes and the small bronchi. When we're talking about infants with bronchiolitis, we also include RSV, which, be, which would be respiratory syncytial virus. And this includes also adenovirus and parainfluenza. So when we have an infant who's having respiratory difficulty, and is exhibiting signs of respiratory distress, we would also do a respiratory panel on them and find out if they have any of these three main viruses that we find in infants. The incidence usually happens during cold and flu season. Sometimes the CDC says cold and flu season happens during the fall months, but as we know, things are changing here rapidly and um, the cold and flu season has lasted now into the spring. So I don't know what this year is gonna be because of COVID, but initially we start getting our flu shots in um, September. So we'll see what they're saying about the predictability of the cold and flu season for us now. When infants are sick with RSV, it could be very mild where they just have something like a typical cold symptoms, or it could be very severe where they are sick and admitted to the NICU or the PICU for several days and ventilated and sedated to give their body rest and time to recover. Infants are definitely at an increased high risk and especially those who were born premature. So that's this is why we encourage the parents to get them the RSV vaccine. Um, as I said, sometimes this uh, will start out as symptoms of an upper respiratory infection. And then as the child becomes sicker, we'll start to notice that they're tachypnic. You may hear different 
different variant breath sounds, wheezing, bronchi, rails, crackles, um, they will start to retract because now their work of breathing has increased. So you'll see intercostal, subcostal retractions, nasal flaring. They won't eat. They're, they seem like they're interested in eating. They might latch onto the breast and then not want it or start to take the bottle and then they stop and they start crying. They're very restless. They're hard to console. Um, they may or may not have a fever. So when we notice that they are going into respiratory failure, you may not hear breath sounds in one lung or you might hear breath sounds in the top and not in the bottom. Um, and this really worries us. When we have noisy breath sounds, that lets us know that they're still moving air. But when we don't hear any breath sounds, that lets us know that there's something wrong. Either, either the lung has collapsed or the lung is full of mucus and now there's no air going in or out. Um, they may start to become very tachypnic. When their respiratory rate is over 60, we do not feed them. We start them as MPO because they're at increased risk of aspiration if their respiratory rate is faster. Um, you'll notice them grunting as in, and when I talked about this before, they're bearing down, try to pop, trying to pop open their lungs so that they can get some ventilation going and some air exchange. You'll notice different varying retractions, the nasal flaring. They're just doing everything they can to get breath in and out of their little bodies. Their abdomen may become distended. They may have some look of hypoxia. You might see cyanosis around their lips, maybe on their tongue. Maybe when you do a cap refill, you might notice that they're a little cyanotic there. And they're just going to be very, very tired because their little, little bodies have worked for a long, hard time, and they just want to rest and not be bothered. So how do we diagnose this? We initially do a chest x-ray to rule out pneumonia. You may find pneumonia at some time, but you will definitely see some hyperinflammation inflation on the chest. And then we do the rhinoprobe or the respiratory panel to see if there is a virus actually going on with this baby. To treat, we support and uh, manage the symptoms. We put them in isolation, so they will be in droplet and contact isolation. We put them on the monitor. We're monitoring their heart rate, their respiratory rate, and their O2 saturations. We keep the head of the bed elevated so that that decreases their work of breathing, so they can, they can get full chest expansion while sitting high. Um, and as I said before, we will put them MPO if they're breathing faster than 60. We watch them for dehydration. So they will definitely be on IV fluids and we do strict I's and O's. And with the infant, when we're doing their output, we ask the parent to parent or caregiver to save all diapers and we weigh them. First, we weigh a, a fresh diaper that they haven't put on the baby yet. And then we zero the scale. And then we put the diaper that they've taken off the infant on there without the wipes involved. And whatever that reading is, is what we record. And there's a place to record where there's mixed with um, urine and stool, or if it's just urine or, or, or if it's just stool. And we're monitoring that against the maintenance IV fluids to see if they are putting out enough, or if we need to increase the maintenance IV fluid rate to get them more hydrated. We do not give cough suppressants. We want them to cough. We want them to bring up this phlegm so that they can get this out of their lungs. Um, one thing that 
this will be also a child that you'll be working closely with respiratory therapists with. One thing that they will do is they'll come around and give frequent nebulizer treatments to these infants. And they're also might be ordered for them to do chest physiotherapy. And that includes them taking a little soft cup and beating on the chest and the back to elicit a cough reflex so that they can cough up some of the mucus and spit it out. Or they may do deep suctioning to suction out the mucus because basically the mucus is building up in their lungs and mucus is not digestible. So as they try to um, feed or do anything else, it's not, it's just kind of sitting there. They're nauseous and they may throw up after they eat. And it could be formula mixed with mucus because the mucus is just kind of sitting there. It's gone from their lungs into their bowels now. And um, they're just really sick and they don't feel like eating. But if they do eat a little something, they might spit it back up. And it could be, um, as I said, vomitus mixed with the mucus. And on the bottom of this slide, I'm talking about the um, Synagus vaccine and how we give that treatment, as I talked about before, would be chest physiotherapy. Some physicians order it because they feel like it is a very good benefit to the infants, and some don't see any changes. Um, they don't rec recommend steroids to, for this treatment anymore. And then antibiotics, only if there is a secondary infection. You might see this infant having an ear infection, or a lot of times we see this infant having pneumonia because the mucus has set in their lungs for so long, it's caused them to develop a pneumonia. So, so nursing priorities, you definitely be working on maintaining the airway and full respiratory function. So if you have this child who's on oxygen and their O2 sats are decreasing, then you go and turn up the oxygen and there's still no change, then you need to consider maybe deep suctioning them because putting oxygen, more oxygen on them and no change is happening. It's just kind of like putting oxygen on a brick wall because there's so much mucus going on in there. There's no air exchange. So you have to suction. And if you don't feel comfortable suctioning, that's when you call in your respiratory friends to suction for you. And they'll suction out a bunch of mucus. And then you'll notice that the O2 saturation increases without you increasing the oxygen. Or maybe sometimes this patient can come off the oxygen altogether and be on room air. And then also supporting the physiologic functions, uh, clustering your nursing care. If they're a febrile, making sure you give the medication for that and then go back and check and see if the medication worked. Maybe do cool compresses if you're, you know, really worried about, because if you leave them with the high fever for too long, it could elicit them to have a seizure. So you want to make sure you don't start any seizure activity. And then, as I said, doing strict eyes and nose, encouraging fluid intake. But of course, if they're NPO, you need to advocate for your patient that maybe their IV fluids need to be turned up to a little higher than the maintenance rate. And then for nursing, when they're in isolation, you want to prevent transmission. Um, as I stated before, since we're also in COVID right now, the um, things could be changed from the way I've known them before. There may not be any allowance of visitors at the bedside at all, but what we've done before is we've put the patient in a single room with signs all over the place about droplet precautions and then talking to the visitors about hand washing and things like that. 
as they come into the room and as they leave the room. Um, but now it could be that no visitors are allowed at all and there are just dedicated staff to these rooms. Um, so there may be one team of nurses who are only doing the um, patients who are in droplet and contact precautions and no one else is allowed to go in the room. I'm not really sure what goes on with that. Um, and I do know for sure that these patients who are in contact and droplet precautions are not allowed outside of the room unless they're going to a procedure. And at that point they will be masked or if it's an infant, we just, excuse me, we just kind of put them over our shoulder so that they're not um, breathing out on everyone else. And then maintaining fluid balance is also very important. Assessing them for hydration every time you assess to make sure that they're okay and suctioning and things like that. So the questions are here, you have the answers for that. And then I'm gonna move on into chronic respiratory illnesses and this would include cystic fibrosis and asthma. So asthma would be a chronic disorder of the airways. You can watch the video about an asthma exacerbation. It's a really good video and it shows you exactly what goes on with that. The definition of asthma is there for you. The prevalence pretty much hasn't changed. Um, there are millions of kids in the United States with asthma. It is the leading cause of school absenteeism. And then it is the third leading cause of hospitalization for kids in the United States. And then um, it does become a significant economic burden to parents. Sometimes parents may have one, not just one child, but more than one child um, with asthma exacerbation or symptoms. Sometimes it's the triggers could be environmental. So it could be something that they use to clean things at school. It could be they, they cut grass in the neighborhood and now all the children are having issues. It could be that there was a fire in the area and the children are breathing that smoke in and now it's caused them to have some issues. So um, the, a lot of the times the medications, the inhalers, all that stuff that they prescribe for them maybe an insurance doesn't cover it. So they're having to pay out of pocket and it becomes very burdensome. The child is in, in and out of the hospital or the physician's office a lot. And now they're having to take off work. So it's really a lot going on with these children. And then um, a lot of visits to the emergency department for asthma, asthma related problems. And sometimes this ends up with a, um, at least a couple of days or a week's hospitalization to get them stabilized. The slides, these slides are a little bit old, of course, but it just gives you um, the prevalence by race and ethnicity. So of course, um, black or African-Americans are high above everyone else. And the reason would be because of course of economic and um, also where they're living. So because if you live in a big city and there's smog and all kinds of things in the environment, this would have causes to trigger a child's asthma. Um, and then you can go through the other slides about prevalence and how this works in the United States. The hallmark characteristics of asthma are definitely airflow obstruction. You have bronchoconstriction, edema and inflammation, the bronchioles are very hyper responsive. And then later on in life, you'll see airway remodeling. Things that can trigger an asthma attack. Here's a whole list of stuff from cigarette smoke to 
exercise or sports. So it is true that asthma could be exercise induced. And if that's true, you need to have an excuse on file for your child at the school um, so that they don't have to go through rigorous sports and things like that. Um, diagnostically, we would use the um, spirometry on the child who's older than five years old to determine if they may have some type of obstruction. We look at a history. Is there a family history? How many times have you noticed your child wheezing? Things like that. We'll do a chest x-ray. And then we look at other causes of obstruction. Is there a cardiac issue? Did they swallow anything? Um, all those types of things come into play. Are their tonsils okay? We rule out, rule out, rule out until we finally land on, yes, this is most likely a cause, an asthma attack. And so we'll see bronchoconstriction. And this is when the airways are getting contracted. And it's almost like a muscle response. So they're still talking through what they're going through, but it's very choppy speech. Triggers could be pet, pollen, dander, medications, foods, anything in the environment. Irritants would be smoke. It could be perfume. A lot of times when we're going through Christmas holidays and you're at the mall and they're spraying little samples of perfume, if a child or an adult walks through that who's very sensitive to that, it may cause them to start wheezing. Um, there also, when you have a respiratory tract infection or the flu, there would be some bronchoconstriction with that. Suddenly cold air or weather changes, exercise, as I talked about before, or hormonal changes when the child reaches adolescence, they may start having more asthma exacerbations because of the flood of hormones in their body. Gastroesophageal reflux could also cause asthma symptoms. And then aspirin or NSAIDs if their body is sensitive to those medications. Here's the pathophysiology slide. You can look at that and see how airway remodeling happens. And then edema and inflammation. You have your different types of cells. A lot of times when they're doing allergy testing to see what um, is actual triggers, you might see them talk about in the report the macrophages or epithelial cells or whatever, the counts were high. Um, and then airway inflammation to le could lead to wheezing, coughing, or shortness of breath. So you may notice just a dry, hacking cough at first in the child, and then later on it gets goes into wheezing, and then they're short of breath, only giving you one to two answers with their speech. Um, acute phase response, and then your late phase response. Um, late phase is what I was talking about before with the airway remodeling, and it's a permanent um, airflow obstruction. So this goes on into older patients, and this would lead to morbidity and mortality when they lose lung capacity due to airflow obstruction and the airway has remodeled because of the muscles have thickened. So you have your structural changes in the airway. The disease progression is um, on the next slide. And so you see increased inspiratory and expiratory effort, which is the work of breathing, hyperinflation of lungs, you'll get trapped air, hyperventilation initially, and then poor ventilation and gas exchange, hypoxia. Um, when you get down to fatigue and further increase in the CO2 with respiratory failure, this is when the patient is going to probably pass away. So hopefully we've done some interventions before it gets this bad.
clinical manifestations is different. The presentation is different for every patient. As I said before, you might notice a dry, tight cough, and then it could be wheezing. They may say they're um, having difficult difficulties getting up, doing exercise or whatever. They could be short of breath. You might always notice that they're all of a sudden assuming the tripod position, and that really lets you know, hey, this is really something going on. You see the increased work of breathing with their chest rise and fall. Um, maybe the parent or the caregiver tells you, well, they were really bad last night. There was a lot of coughing going on last night. And when I went in to get them up for school this morning, I could hear them wheezing. And we tried the nebulizer and it didn't work. Um, so clinical manifestations here, it gives you the um, pathophysiologic method mechanism, I'm sorry, of what the clinical manifestation would be. And then you have the little cartoon of asthma, also known as reactive airway disease. So what triggers could happen and then what happens in an asthma attack. And then status asthmaticus is life-threatening. And this is when the patient is having an asthma attack and nothing is working. You're giving your continuous nebulizer treatments and they seem to not be improving and it seems like their lungs are just shutting down. So um, hopefully by then they're in the emergency department receiving everything and they would put this patient on the ventilator, sedate them and put them in the ICU for further observation. You have your lab findings on the next slide and then your classification of asthma severity. I would encourage you to pay attention to this slide, um, knowing what a mild attack looks like versus, versus a severe attack or impending respiratory therapy, respiratory failure, sorry. Um, for pharmacologic treatments, I don't expect you to know this by heart, but it's just talking about um, what the steps are as far as medications and things. Um, you have your medications that they use to control. Singular is a very popular one that they use, especially with kids. Um, and then they'll do some type of inhaler. So what you need to know about the inhalers is you have your quick relief or rescue inhalers, and that's when they start to have the symptoms. Um, they will use something to uh, help them break up the symptoms right away. And then you have your maintenance, um, maintenance inhalers also. So know the difference between that, know the difference between what a quick relief medication would be and what a um, maintenance medication would be. And then this gives you what an acute asthma episode would look like. So when they're in severe respiratory distress, you don't hear anything when you put your stethoscope on to auscultate the lungs. There's no air movement going in or out. When the chest is silent, that's a really bad sign. Um, and so management, I've already told you how to look over that. Um, and then you have just medications that I just put in here to kind of let you understand what all that's about. And then you have your the ways that we administer medications by inhaler. The spacer would be something that they put on the um, adult or the child's inhaler to help give them a little bit more time to receive the medication. The MDI would be the metered dose inhaler. And you, then you have the dry powered inhaler and the nebulizer would be the machine that they have at home use for giving inhaled medications. 
Um, you have your bronchodilators and then potential nursing diagnoses and problems. For intervention, as I said, go ahead and just sit them up, sit the child or the adult up. And that's the least thing, easiest thing you can do when they're having issues. Um, put them, putting them on O2, if they're in an emergency, go ahead and put O2 on. I know you need a physician's order for it, but go ahead and put O2 on and get the physician's order later if it's an emergency. Um, Continuous evaluation, your focus assessment is on the respiratory system. Auscultate the lungs, see if anything has changed. Look at the pulse oximetry, look at your patient, making sure their skin color is looking okay. They're not have, continuing to have distress. If they're improving and calming down their work of breathing, encourage the parent or the caregiver to be involved in the care if at all possible. Cluster your nursing care and also start your planning for discharge and education as soon as possible when they um, come in for admission. Try to find out what happened. What triggered this response right now? Were they getting, did they get a new kitten or were they at the place looking at new kittens and new puppies? Maybe this is the first time they knew that they had an allergy to pets. Um, Talk about the importance of exercise and mention some things that would help swimming, yoga, um, all those types of things with the breathing. Um, talk about the asthma action plan. Show them how to use a peak flow meter and make sure that they know how to use that. Or if they say they know how to use it, just re-educate them on it. Um, making sure they keep up with their prescribed medications. Do they need a refill on anything? Uh, how important it is for adequate hydration in schools now, they will allow the children to bring a water bottle to sip on. And then dental care after medication use. Some of the medications are very hard on the gums and the teeth. So even if they could just rinse afterwards, that will be very helpful or they're really supposed to brush their teeth after most inhalers. The next slide shows your asthma action plan. And this should also be in the school nurse's office as well. So if the patient is getting into trouble, they know what to do, or if it's really bad, they'll just know how to go ahead and call 911. And also the child should have a medical alert bracelet on stating that they have asthma. This is free for kids four to 14. You just need to get the physician to fill out the form and then you send it in and they'll send you the little charm to either go on the shoe or do a bracelet or something like that. So um, regular assessments are very vital. And then educating the patient, parent, parent, and caregivers about it, maybe even telling them they should take a CPR course. And then, um, you know, just doing everything we can to prevent morbidity and death. And there are more questions there. And our next topic will be cystic fibrosis. Our next topic is going to be cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis was most commonly found in Caucasian Americans, but we are seeing it more commonly diagnosed now in kids who are multiracial. It is a chronic, progressive, and fatal genetic disease. We are seeing people live longer than 37 years but the average survival rate is 37 years. My friend actually takes care of a gentleman in Washington, D.C. at Children's Hospital of D.C., and he is in his 50s. I believe he's mid-50s now, 
and he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as a baby, he still comes to Children's Hospital for his tune-up because he only trusts the physicians at Children's Hospital to take care of him. And I really believe it was because his mother was so good with everything that she did for him while he was young, um, making sure that he ate healthy and really followed up on his care and everything. She followed it to the letter. And I believe that's probably why he has survived for so long. He has not needed a transplant or anything. He's just basically on medication and they are working him up for an article and he's part of a study right now as well. So cystic fibrosis affects everything from the rooter to the tutor. It's a mucus plugging disorder. So everything in the tract, your digestive tract, your respiratory tract, all of this plugs up with the mucus and your sweat glands also are plugged up. So um, it usually happens with, um, it's an autosomal recessive disorder of the exocrine glands. And so we'll, we will notice that um, most kids are diagnosed when they're over two years old. We are seeing kids diagnosed, I'm, I'm sorry, when they're less than two years old, we are seeing kids diagnosed even younger than that. Um, and so sometimes, especially if there's a family history, we can work up the genetics and find out if this child is most likely to have cystic fibrosis. It does run in families. You may have siblings who both have cystic fibrosis and it is very, um, hard with the family because of all the hospitalizations and things that happen and fighting with the insurance companies for coverage and such. So as I said, cystic fibrosis with the exocrine glands of all of these systems, even the reproductive system. So oftentimes these um, patients will be infertile. So you have the plugging of the respiratory system, digestive system, and the, the sweat glands, and then now your reproductive system. If you look on the next slide, it shows you um, which organs are affected. So a lot of times these kids will have um, what we think is cold symptoms, but it is a sinus sinusitis infection. They have surgeries on their sinuses to get out the mucus plugging. They're always on antibiotics and multiple medications. The um, thick buildup of mucus in their lungs could lead to um, several types of pneumonia. It could lead to their lungs collapsing and them having to get chest tubes. They, um, with their sweat glands, they're in the, back in like the fifties and stuff, they were called the salty babies because the mom said when they kissed them, they tasted like salt. I've never kissed a baby with cystic fibrosis. I've always wondered about that though. But to me, their skin feels like, you know, when you've had a day at the beach and you have sand on your skin, that's kind of what the skin feels like for some of these kids. Um, the liver and the pancreas will be blo blocked up. And then we have pancreatic insufficiency, which also leads to diabetes. Um, their intestines won't allow them to fully absor absorb the nutrition that they need from their foods. So we'll often have to supplement them with um, tube feedings so that they can get their nutrition and gain weight and grow. Um, the next slide shows you a little cartoon of cystic fibrosis. So with their diet, we increase the calories and the protein. And um, we also have to make sure that um, we weigh them constantly, height, weight, check, and the babies. We also do a head circumference to try and make sure that they're staying on um, some type of scale with their height and weight and growth. And then we 
um, try to do a, with the nutritionist working. She does some type, she or he does some type of magical um, scale of what their caloric intake should be. And we just let them eat basically whatever is recommended. And it looks like it's so unhealthy, but this is what is recommended for their um, daily allowance to keep up with all the insensible losses that they're going through. Um, we do bronchodilators, chest physiotherapy with them. We monitor their blood glucose, as I said, because of the risk of diabetes. We encourage them to have exercise. They're always on antibiotics prophylactically for infections. We do water-soluble um, vitamins, and that's A, D, E, and K. We call it ADEX. Um, and they have to take pancreatic enzymes also because of the pancreatic insufficiency. So they'll take these um, around meals and also with snacks. Um, so they have the salty snacks, and then they have, um, if they have to go on insulin or some type of uh, other diabetic regimen, we'll have that for them as well. What they look like characteristically, they have very skinny um, arms and legs, and then they have the um, protruding belly. Um, they will have clubbing to their fingers and toes because of the lack of oxygen getting all the way out to the um, extremities. And um, their stools will be very strange. They will be tired a lot of the times, or they may sleep a lot during the day and be up all night. They are very short in stature because they are always considered failure to thrive. They may have a rectal, rectal prolapse, I'm sorry, because of the straining with the stools. With the babies, they never have a, um, their first meconium stool. So we say that they have the meconium ileus in, um, when they're in infancy. So for the respiratory system, as I said before, it's always mucus plugging. And then they have the chronic infections with um, Pseudomonas, Staphylococcus, and Haemophilus. So um, as I said, we may end up giving them a chest tube several times to support their lungs. They may end up in the ICU, ventilated, sedated, just to give their body a rest. You might notice that they bronchospasm quite frequently. Eventually, the fibrotic tissue um, of their lungs could lead to their demise. And then they um, sometimes will get hypoxic or have, have, have hypercapnia and very acidotic. So this is when respiratory therapy is managing their case. Usually they'll have a primary respiratory therapist. So every time they are admitted for their tune-up, that will be the respiratory therapist that's working with them. For their digestive system, the pancreatic duct is often obstructed, and so they can't um, have they can't digest carbs, fats, and proteins. So this would be poor digestion, leading leading to failure to thrive. And then they have the mucus plugs in their intestines. So um, this is why I talk about them being at risk for type one diabetes. They may have Crohn's disease. You may have them show up with Crohn's disease. And then they also might have um, intermittent small bowel obstructions as well in the older children. So clinical manifestations of CF would be, um, as I talked about, the parents noticing the salty taste on their skin. Um, meconium ileus, the baby never passes the first meconium stool. Their stools could be Weird, just like foul smelling, um, really greasy looking, frothy, um, failure to thrive. You might notice them 
wheezing or sounding weird when they breathe, um, having all, all the time a dry, hacking, non-productive cough. Their belly would be large, um, and that's probably because they have the mucus plugging of their intestines. And so, um, and then their extremities are just really skinny and spindly looking. Um, and I show you on the next slide the clubbing of the fingers. And then um, the symptoms I talked about with the persistent coughing and all those types of things, the nasal congestion, um, you can look over that. And then it shows you about the um, basically the airway remodeling and how the bacterial infection and then the mucus layers thicken and block off the airway. Prognosis for these children, um, as I talked about, usually they live to be about age 37. A lot of times when they do die, it's because the lungs have become so fibrotic, they can't expand anymore and support the body. We have worked up children to have um, multiple organ transplants. So it could be um, a lung transplant, also with a pancreas transplant or um, any other way around that. But we still have to understand that the child's body has cystic fibrosis. So they'll get these new organs and hopefully, fingers crossed, they don't reject the organs, but we still have to monitor them for symptoms of cystic fibrosis. And also knowing that any solid organ transplant usually lasts about 10 to 15 years. So in the next 10 to 15 years, we also have to work them up for getting a new transplant. So it's still a lifelong process with them. There still may be multiple hospitalizations, especially if they start to reject the organ. They're always going to have to do um, lab work and make sure that they're still doing okay, that there's no infection and everything. So um, you have your clinical manifestations. Um, I just talked a little bit about that. And then they get hospitalized quite frequently for a tune-up is what we call it. And this is when they come in and they get lots and lots and lots of respiratory treatments and tests and, you know, looking at their lungs and things like that to make sure that they're still stable. And then we talked about um, respiratory failure would cause their demise. Um, digestively, we're looking at um, steatorrhea, which would be the fatty stools malnutrition or failure to thrive. Um, they could have deficiencies with their vitamins. So this is why we supplement them with vitamin A, the, with the ADEX vitamins, um, the meconium ileus, intestinal obstructions. They may end up with a liver disease or diabetes type one. Reproductively, males are usually sterile and females um, may have delayed menarche or delayed start in their periods. They could have menstrual irregularities. So we're always um, testing the females, even though it's highly unlikely that they'll become pregnant. We still will do a pregnancy screen on them because sometimes it's, they haven't had a period for like three or four months. And some of them understand that, hey, my life is going to be shortened, so I'm just going to live life you know, any way, I'm just going to be risky. So we still have to check and make sure that they're not pregnant. Um, with the exocrine glands, we have to worry about their risk for dehydration. We encourage them on hot days to um, drink water, drink Gatorade because of the electrolyte imbalances. And then um, there's a high sodium concentration in their sweat. And we look in the infants, we 
look at them and monitor them for hypochloremia and hyponatremia as well. So they'll be getting frequent labs for that. If this is a case where it's known, like CF runs in the family, we'll do some diagnostic testings prenatally. And also, it, just in general, we do diagnostic prenatal testing. Um, and then if the baby is born, we also do newborn screening. And that's where they prick the heel of the baby and do those little circle dot paperwork. I believe the state of California tests for more than 50 uh, disorders now. So cystic fibrosis would be one of those that they're testing for. If the patient is still suspected of having CF, we do a sweat test and then um, the values have to come back greater than 60 for it to be diagnosed that they have cystic fibrosis. So the sweat test is, um, this is one of the ways they do the sweat test diagnostically. And then this is the other one where they um, it depends on the hospital or the facility. They'll put the plastic on the arms and put them under a heat lamp. I call them the French fry lamps and um, let the baby kind of sweat it out into those um, baggies. So there's a lot of collaborative care that goes in with cystic fibrosis. You have your nutritionist coming in. You have social work, case manager, um, respiratory therapy, of course, is number one in this situation. So. Um, Respiratory therapist is going to maintain the airway, keep making sure the um, secretions are eliminated. And then we're looking at controlling infection. So sometimes infectious disease is involved as well. Nutritionist is going to promote optimal, optimal nutrition. And then we may have GI specialists involved also. And then um, lots of IV fluids and things like that going in to prevent dehydration. So a lot of times these patients end up with a port or a portacath instead of just having us continue to stick them for IVs every time they enter the hospital. And so um, you have your aerosolized nebulizer. So this helps to, the pulmazine helps to break up the mucus so that once they start the chest physiotherapy, they can um, cough it up and spit it out. And then you have your bronchodilators, which we give the medications, before we start any chest physiotherapy. So if they're on the vest, we give the medications first so they can get in the lungs and start breaking up the mucus. And then we put the vest on and that further breaks up the mucus and then they can spit it out. So that's very important to know that you give the medications before you start any chest physiotherapy. And so um, these are some medications and how they would work. This is a patient with his pulmazine, and this is also bronchodilator and pulmazine. So pulmazine is on your left, and then the bronchodilator with the spacer is on the right-hand side. And so I put this picture in here because it's rare. This is an African-American kid um, with cystic fibrosis getting treatments. And so um, you have your collaborative care. Your um, airway clearance techniques would be the CPT. And then they have also postural drainage and you have your chest vest, which um, the vest is put on and then it's hooked up to a machine and it's like it kind of shakes up the lungs a little bit and jiggles them around. And so it breaks up a lot of the mucus plugs and then they will spit it out. So here's how you have one CPT with the cupping of the hands and postural drainage. The mom on the right hand side is doing that. 
So she's moving the baby all around, up and down, turning them around and to help aid them with postural drainage. And then the therapy vest, you have these two girls here. Um, and the little one, I think you have to be a certain weight. I can't remember the exact weight in order to be able to wear the vest. And then they have um, certain um, volumes that they turn it up to because if it's put on and it's beating them too hard, it could literally bruise the chest. So we have certain um, settings on it for certain weight. And then um, they also have other little devices that they use and they encourage aerobic exercise. And also if they are in an extracurricular activity that they're doing continuously, maybe it's tennis, maybe it's the swim team or something like that, they may have to um, give them salt supplements to help them throughout the day. And then um, we, I talked about antibiotic prophylaxis. And so they may have to do something like that for kids who are um, frequently becoming infected with lung infections. And then um, you see the antibiotics over here. Collaborative care, I talked about also lung transplants, which could be occasional. These patients have to be worked up very specifically and very specially before they can even qualify for a lung transplant. 60% of the cases who get a lung transplant will survive for the first five years. And then um, there's very little improvement in survival for long-term um, outcomes. So this is still a situation where we still need to do a lot of research and development in this. Unfortunately, they don't um, do a lot of research on children. So that's kind of a holdup with that. Nursing, you can read over that about um, the nursing diagnoses. And then for their diet, we use 150% of the recommended daily allowance. So that means just give them everything. And then we um, do our supplements with the vitamins and everything. I talked about the enzymes and around meals and with snacks, never crush or chew it. And then um, don't mix it with anything hot, acidic or starchy. And then if it's an infant, you're gonna wipe the enzymes off their lips. For assessment, you're gonna look at if they're coughing, is there any phlegm coming up? What does the character look like? Is it thick, thin? Does it have a color? Are there any changes in the cough? What are the breath sounds like? You're looking at their growth. What did they look like on the growth chart the last time they had an inpatient experience? And then um, their secondary sex characteristics could be delayed due to malnutrition. So um, just being understanding of that and then monitoring their stool, their abdomen. So every time they come in, we do an abdominal girth with them. And then um, your nursing priorities are here. You are going to be providing psychosocial support, not only for the patient, but also for the family. And then you have your management of your goals. And here are two videos here for you to look at with the life of a child with cystic fibrosis. And that is all I have for you. I hope that you um, have learned something from this. Please let me know if you have any questions. Thank you.